Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When Diplomacy Fails presents The July Crisis Anniversary Project A day-by-day account of the events that occurred 100 years ago Conclusion Can the eruption of World War I and the successive events of the 20th century really be explained out of the barrel of Gavrilo Princip's pistol? Or can they be attributed to the actions of a small group of men who, if they had only acted differently, could have so changed our world? That was the question we sought to address. The aim of this project was to delve deeper into the events of the July Crisis and to examine the individuals, many of whom aren't known to popular history. I wanted to present you with a different version than the one you know. I wanted to do this because the false version of history is the one that is widely distributed in the popular consciousness. I'm not just referring to the Germany started it idea. I'm talking about the Germany wanted it, planned it, willed it, and forced it into being. I'm talking about the German historians of the 1960s, prime among them Fritz Fischer, who declared emphatically that Germany was to blame. Since that point, it has been a battle for historians to establish the truth. Indeed, some of the greatest accounts of the July Crisis I have come across heaped a considerable amount of blame still on Germany. Some of the most poignant, immersive social histories of the war upheld to the end the fact that the war began due to German and sometimes Habsburg aggression. We know that the cause of the war wasn't so simple, and we'll get to that in a minute, but it is worth referring to another issue that I raised in the introduction the classification of the First World War as an unnecessary tragedy. After listening to the project through, a small recap is likely required, and we'll certainly be referring to this recap later on in the episode, so don't worry if you can't remember everything that happened in the past 28 episodes. So let's start from the beginning. There was the assassination, which only worked because the driver took the wrong turn. Princep was not eating a sandwich, having given up all hope. He was a tenacious terrorist who believed emphatically in what he was doing. So he consulted the itinerary of where Franz Ferdinand was expected to go next, and he waited there for him. Franz, of course, had changed this itinerary, and would never have been in contact with Princep, had the lead police car not taken the wrong turn, and caused the rest of Ferdinand's motorcade to follow him like sheep. 
This exposed Franz Ferdinand for just enough time to let Prince F get a shot off. And the young Serb wasted no time. He shot and killed both the Archduke and his wife on the morning of the 28th of June 1914. Austria indeed would have responded with force within days, and this may have provided Europe with no chance to get involved before the entire issue had been settled with an occupation of Belgrade. However, the question of German support had to be settled first, and so over the 5th to the 6th of July, having debated the issue for a week already, one of Austria's diplomats went to Berlin in relative secrecy and obtained the necessary support from the German Kaiser and his officials. It had to be conducted in relative secrecy because, in the background of Austria-Hungary's response, lurked the Hungarian minister-president, Stefan Tisa, a man who, I'm sure, has slipped our memory since he left the narrative a few episodes ago. Tisa is the man almost solely responsible for the fact that Austria did not respond in force within days. The entire exercise of gaining German support had been done not just to convince the Austrians themselves that they could do it, but also so that the Austrian Foreign Minister, Leopold von Berchtold, would have sufficient ammo to use to persuade the Hungarian towards the course of force. But Tisa remained stuck to a policy of non-force for his own complicated reasons, which essentially revolved around the fear that Austrian expansion would dilute the Hungarian influence. But the Austrian response was also massively upset by the fact that Konrad von Hotzendorf, the Austrian chief of staff, had approved an earlier measure to allow his soldiers to return home for harvest leave. The two factors then had a large part to play in the delay. It also meant that the thoroughly belligerent Konrad wasn't so eager to intervene until his soldiers had returned. Events in Europe soon brought Tisa away from his fears and over to the war party though. When anti-Habsburg rhetoric exploded in Serbia after the death of the beloved Russian ambassador, Nikolai Hartwig, who died during a meeting with the Austrian ambassador on Friday the 10th of July. Over the next weekend, riots and demonstrations against Vienna played a large part in convincing Tisa that force was the only course, and that diplomatic victory he had been searching for wouldn't suffice any longer. Austria now had to decide how to act. It would be too controversial to simply attack Serbia, especially after the rhetoric over the weekend, so an ultimatum was decided on, one which Serbia would be unable to accept and thus bring about war, but which had to appear genuine to appease foreign opinion. The idea was developed in secret, but of course leaked out dramatically, and would reach the ears of most statesmen in Europe well before its planned date of delivery. The date of delivery was designed to coincide with the French and Russian representatives having just left each other's company the 23rd of July, so that neither of them could form a coherent strategy. But the French president, Raymond Poincaré, was informed of it while in St. Petersburg by the British ambassador to Russia, and though it wasn't clear exactly what the Franco-Russian Entente should expect, an Austrian response in the form of a harsh ultimatum seemed likely. Just before the summit ended and the French leaders returned home, word filtered through via the Italian embassy about the delivery of the ultimatum on the night of the 23rd. From there, it became a case of deciding the response to Austria's actions. Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Sazonov, argued almost from the get-go for a strong response. He had been encouraged by the French president during the summit to stand up to the central powers, and though his comrade was now at sea on a return voyage, Sazonov was confident that he could count on his support for whatever transpired. So Sazonov upped the ante. He ordered partial mobilisation against Austria, 
in the hope that Germany would not get alarmed. Despite the fact that no Russian plans existed for a partial mobilization against just one of the Central Powers, since just like in the planning of the Central Powers, it was expected that an alliance bloc war would always be the war that would occur, rather than a one-on-one affair, Sazonov overruled the objective of his underlings, as well as contradicting his previous policy decisions in favour of the move. This idea of partial mobilisation dominated the Russian foreign minister's thinking for the next few days, but his mind would soon be changed. On the 25th of July, the Tsar was persuaded to sign the partial mobilisation against Austria, since it was expected that once the Austrian ultimatum to Serbia expired, Vienna would attack. To preempt this, Sazonov wanted Russia to be ready to begin partial mobilisation and reveal its plans once Austria attacked. He got his approval, not only of the partial mobilisation, which Sazonov informed the British and French ambassadors of, but also of the Russian period preparatory to war, of which he remained silent. The Russian period preparatory to war was to be kept utterly secret from all statesmen, and as a consequence is a less well-known aspect of the July crisis. When the Serb reply was handed to Austria at 6pm on the 25th, though it left a few issues to be desired for Vienna, it was a remarkable document that came very close to Habsburg's satisfaction. Yet it was refused, and the Austrian ambassador packed his things and left Belgrade that evening. On his way home did the Austrian learn of Serbian mobilisation earlier that day. He informed his emperor of this, and the approval came through for Austria to mobilise against Serbia alone that evening, just after 9pm. The next morning seemed awash with expectation. The Russians had mobilised against Austria and effectively flipped their switch on the countdown to war with the period preparatory to war in secret. Meanwhile, Austria had mobilised against Serbia in response to Serbia's mobilisation, though Austria surely would have had to mobilise anyway to demonstrate its seriousness. It created a very tense situation, but Sazonov remained evasive and wouldn't reveal the nature of what he was doing to foreign observers. Word began to creep out in rumour to German statesmen, but the background efforts of Russia were overshadowed by Austria's declaration of war on Serbia on the 28th of July. Berchtold's incredibly unwise move of declaring war on Serbia a full two weeks before Austria was ready to actually fight stands as one of the Central Powers' worst decisions. However, there would be more. Contrary to the historical consensus, such a declaration was made without the prior knowledge or blessing of the Germans, though Berchtold was still operating on the basis that the blank check from Germany ratified any action Austria decided to take. It shattered foreign opinion and meant that Sazonov became desperate to inaugurate general mobilization against Austria in the Austro-Russian border areas, which he did on the 28th of July. By the next day, though, on the 29th, unfortunate circumstances had persuaded Sazonov that he would have to mobilise generally against both of the Central Powers rather than just Austria. This decision came about because of the delivery of a telegram to Sazonov from Berlin, which informed him of Germany's obligations to its ally, and that it would have to support Vienna if Russia attacked. And that it would have to support Vienna if Russia attacked. Only an hour beforehand did the Russians receive news that Austria had begun shelling Belgrade. These two events, though unrelated, since Berlin was not apprised of what Austria was doing anymore, hit Sazonov like a bomb. He saw the attack on Belgrade as a German-motivated response to show Russia that the Central Powers meant business, while the telegram informing him of Germany's obligations were seen as the warning and threat that Germany would respond forcefully to any moves made against its ally. 
Because the two events followed so closely after one another, they had the effect of persuading Sazonov that Austrian policy was essentially German policy, and that there was realistically little point in mobilising against Austria alone, since Germany would respond either way. Sazonov refused to bow to what he perceived as the Central Powers trying to pressure Russian cooperation. It was on this day, the 29th of July, that he decided on war. From then, events rapidly took on their own momentum that few seemed able to stop. Russia mobilised generally on the 30th of July, after a non-starter the day before that was prevented by a timely confusion on the part of the Tsar in the Nikki Willy telegrams. Though Russia didn't announce it, it didn't keep its mobilisation secret either. Word had reached the Kaiser and his ministers of what Russia had done, and had been doing, for five days, by the next day. It caused a sensation. Germany would now have to follow suit, its statesman claimed, or she would be disadvantaged and destroyed. With France and Austria following suit, Germany obliged and flipped her own switch on the 31st. The next day on the 1st of August, when the ultimatum she had issued to Russia to end her mobilisation expired, Germany declared war. In a flurry of activity did Germany's statesmen seek to obtain guarantees from Britain and France that they would remain neutral. These complicated matters, but in the end Germany did declare war on France on the 3rd of August. The next day on the 4th, after Germany violated Belgian sovereignty by launching its invasion as per the Schlieffen plan, Britain issued an ultimatum of her own which expired at midnight that night. Britain thus declared that it was henceforth in a state of war with Germany. How do we explain everything we've just heard? A major point of this project has been to emphasise the fact that the July crisis was a complex series of winding events, and judging by the sheer volume of content, I believe my work has attested to that fact. It is very difficult to get one's head around the march from point A to point war. More difficult still was the immense effort involved in wrapping my head around the terminology, like the differences between mobilizations and what a period preparatory to war actually meant, being two examples. Watching statesmen change from anti-war to pro-war was very interesting, because it was these statesmen who effectively pulled the plug on peace. So it stands to reason that whatever it was that moved them towards a pro-war policy was considered by them to warrant actual war in the first place. But what we've surely gathered from all this is just how important communication was. It was from failures in communication that Berkdahl remained unaware of the fact that his ultimatum was common knowledge. It was from failures in communication that the German Chancellor managed to insult Sazonov into general mobilisation. It was from failures in communication that Austria acted often to the detriment of its allies' public image. Most striking of all, though, is the most understated. After the Cuban Missile Crisis, a hotline was set up between Moscow and Washington so that the two Cold War rivals could communicate with one another and clarify the other's intentions during periods of tension. Before this was set up, both sides believed that the other wanted to seek their ruin, and yet both believed that they were acting in self-defence. What struck me about the July Crisis was that such honesty was absent from any diplomatic interactions or communications. Whether in person or by telegram, statesmen harboured ideas and impressions about what their rival counterparts wanted, and it almost always involved sinister plots for their downfall. It is worth pointing to the fact that Sazonov remained convinced to the end that Germany was pushing Austria to act in every region that had happened to offend him. Had he merely talked to the German ambassador and expressed his genuine concerns, then the resulting clarification could have been enough to satisfy his nerves. 
perhaps. But Sazonov wasn't the only statesman with inaccurate ideas about his counterparts. Even though the German Chancellor was ardently in favour of a British rapprochement and had made it his life's work to achieve it, a large number of British statesmen still upheld that Germany wished to do Britain serious harm. Could these two states have sorted their underlying issues out if they had merely talked with honesty? Perhaps we expect too much of the statesmen from that era if we expect them to sacrifice their sense of reservation when dealing with hostile dignitaries, but still it is worth considering. The impact that individuals made on the entire process is perhaps the most striking issue of all. It was Gavrido Princip who shot the Archduke. It was a relatively unknown Austrian diplomat, Count Hoyos, who obtained the blank check from Germany. It was Stefan Tisa who delayed and blocked a united Austrian response for the better part of a month. It was Sergei Sazanov who pushed for the signing of the period preparatory to war into law. It was Leopold von Berchtold who insisted on declaring war on Serbia before foreign opinion and indeed his own military were ready. It was Tsar Nicholas II who signed the order for general mobilisation. It was Sir Edward Grey who remained unawares of what was really going on, and thus ensured that Britain behaved according to Franco-Russian information. It was Theobald von Bethmann Hallweg who lamented the situation, but eventually insisted on general mobilisation against Russia. It was Kaiser Wilhelm II who signed the declarations of war against Russia and then France. If anyone had the power to fundamentally rearrange the course of history, it was these men, who together represented the great powers of the world during this era. How do we understand them? How how do we get inside their heads and feel as though we can relate to their struggles? How do we forgive them? This was another series of questions that I posed to you in the introduction episode. The men who stood in these positions and made these decisions dramatically altered history. A case can be made thus for tracing the war to the actions of these individuals who alone have nothing in common, but who, taken together, appear as the most responsible for what happened. So if you could go back in time to this July crisis, and be there during the moments that defined our world, what would you do? Would you try to change anything? Should you change it? Since we at least know this version of our history, what if you make the future worse for mankind through your changes? Do you think that you could have done better than these statesmen, who Europe relied upon to lead them, but who ultimately let us down? Do you think that after what you've listened to in this project, if you went back in time, you'd be able to avoid the mistakes that were made? Would you be able to prevent an unnecessary tragedy? In this way I opened the introduction episode, so now I pose to you this question. After seeing the way in which the war transpired, after seeing the blunders that were made and the disastrous decisions and policy that statesmen presided over, was the First World War an unnecessary tragedy? The answer, of course, is a resounding yes. But it is important to ask the question because it is perhaps the most resounding yes I have ever come across. Where else could you find such a cacophony of blunders, mistakes, illusions and lies that led to such a terribly preventable event? Some historians maintain that the war was inevitable, that even without the July crisis blowing up in everyone's face, war was bound to come. Some even argue that without the assassination that began the whole thing, war still would have come. I simply don't buy that. Having seen what we've seen, when everyone was reacting to moves and when they decided on policy largely out of fear or misunderstanding, I don't see a Europe that willed to suffer, as Churchill put it, 
I see a Europe whose statesmen busied themselves with maintaining commitments, and who remained paranoid that their rivals were concocting some grand scheme against them, and that only through a forceful response could this threat be answered. However, I also don't see a Europe that was simply carried along by fate, and which was powerless to stop the march towards war. The First World War, and thus the very shape of the 20th century, was subject to change up until the moment that Europe statesmen signed the orders. There was no rigid system in place that necessitated an inevitable war, to suggest as much excuses European statesmen of their responsibility. Alliance blocks existed, there is no denying that, but we must remember that while military plans for both sides were in place, these blocks existed for the very purpose of security, for defence, to prevent war by means of deterrence. Understanding that is key, because it helps explain why Europe was arming itself at a rapid rate up until the war broke out. Some historians point to the fact that standing armies were on the rise, that military technologies were heavily researched and that military bills were passed, as proof of the inevitable nature of war. And yet, even while such facts do suggest that war was on the horizon, other more considerable arguments point towards the reality of 1914 being one of surprising detente. The naval race between Germany and Britain, so often lauded as a central facet of the war between the two, was over in Britain's favour by July 1914. This is attested to by the fact that, after some years of tension, Britain's formerly anti-German statesmen were considering taking a more conciliatory approach to Germany. Such a course seemed favourable, to Grey and others, because of the troubling signals that Russia continued to send off, such as in its violations of the 1907 convention between Britain and Russia that had played such a large part in bringing Britain into the Entente as a loose member. This fact is often lost in the pre-war analysis in favour of the narrative which emphasises an aggressive Germany opposed by Britain for fear of the naval power that the Kaiser possessed. Though Wilhelm loved his navy, though he liked to think of it as an equal to Britain's, it was not, and Admiral Tirpitz knew as much. If not the naval rivalry, then surely Germany's eagerness to launch a preemptive war before the power of Russia and France became too much to bear is to blame. While ideas of preemptive war were certainly espoused by Malka, who viewed France's three-year law military bill in 1913 with disdain and fear, and who saw the Russian colossus growing more unobtainable by the year, they were not shared by either Wilhelm or Bethmann Hallweg. No evidence exists to support the argument that these two German statesmen wanted to launch a preemptive war. The Schlieffen plan be damned, even if, in a few years' time, it became outdated by its rival's advancement, the Kaiser and the Chancellor remained, especially in the case of the latter, to pursue a rapprochement with Britain, for the same reason some British statesmen sought to do the same. They knew the naval race had been lost. While Bethmann and Wilhelm may not have held the same ideas as Maltke or all of Germany's military minds, the chief of staff had a habit of referring to the two as Germany's two old women, Maltke was a subordinate of the Chancellor's, and he couldn't act without his approval, and certainly not without his sovereigns. There is no doubt that a preemptive war party existed in Germany, but to state that it controlled the country is far too great a leap from the reality. What of the blank check that they were to issue to Austria then? Did that not prove that Germany wanted war? We must remember that, having seen Austria blunder through the July crisis, we know how woefully inept its policymakers were at adhering to something resembling a coherent response. Germany knew nothing of this. They expected their ally to make a determined and strong stand against a smaller rival. 
That, of course, doesn't absolve Germany from the atrociously irresponsible move it made in approving the blank check. And we must remember also that in the German mind, a fait accompli policy of rapidly crushing Serbia was the expected and in some cases hoped for action for Vienna to take. However, such a policy was meant to come into form quickly, not drag on till the end of the month, and certainly not involve Russia and France and constitute a world war. Such a consideration is important when we consider Austria's role in the crisis. It is easy to present what Vienna did as the beginning of the war, as the moment when there was no going back and to blame Austria-Hungary for it. Certainly, the Habsburg wandering to war that constituted the bulk of the July crisis was a process that contained a serious level of questionable activities, and we can attribute blame to certain Habsburg statesmen for the determination to seek war with Serbia. However, in my view, that's all we can do. What is critical to remember about the July crisis, from the Austrian point of view, is just how badly Austria didn't want Russia to intervene. Russia had initially scared Tisa away from the prospect of using force. We saw how Conrad, even in the last days of Europe-wide peace, had to be persuaded largely against his will to mobilise against Russia, having mobilised only against Serbia before that. The fear of fighting a two-front war in Conrad's mind had led him to comment that we shouldn't mobilise at all, when Berchtold had earlier inquired about it. This hadn't changed by the time that the Austrian plans were altered. In the midst of the campaigning against Belgrade, Austrian forces would be withdrawn to fight Russia out of the German fear that the Russian steamroller was moving too fast, and that Vienna really had to carry the weight. Down to the last hours, when they discovered to their horror the reality of what Germany was doing, Conrad would almost certainly have had a breakdown. Just like the Austrian attack on Belgrade ruined Germany's plans, Germany's need to have Austria hold Russia back meant that Vienna couldn't engage in the kind of offensive against the Serbs that Conrad so desired, and that he had been desiring and pushing for for years. The way Austria was viewed by its rivals also plays a significant part in the outcome of the July crisis. The view that the Habsburg Empire was in the decline was a contemporary one, not just a modern one invented by historians, and it was shared by the statesmen of the Franco-Russian Entente. It was not a baseless belief as we have seen, but it did undermine the entitlement, from the French and Russian perspectives, that Austria had to seek some kind of justice for what happened at Sarajevo on June the 28th. Was Austria not entitled to get some justice? In his groundbreaking book, The Sleepwalkers, How Europe Went to War in 1914, Christopher Clarke makes the point that the view of a necessary Austrian decline disinhibited, as he put it, Vienna's enemies, because it undermined the notion that Austria, like every other state, had the right to defend its interests. That doesn't mean its war against Serbia was justifiable, but it does mean that Austria was in a very difficult position after the assassinations. It is of course easy to state that Austria should have negotiated with Serbia to acquire justice. But this wasn't a credible option in 1914. It wasn't just, as Clark put it, that Serb authorities were partly unwilling and partly unable to suppress the irredentist activity that had given rise to the event in the first place. It was also that Serbia's... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Allies didn't concede to Vienna the right to ensure any level of Serb compliance, on the grounds that it would infringe upon Serbia's sovereignty. Whatever our views on the Habsburg Empire, did it not have a right to get satisfaction from Serbia? If the roles were reversed, and if a pro-Habsburg faction that had penetrated all levels of Austrian government sends assassins out to kill the Serb Prime Minister, or indeed the King or his heirs, one would expect Serbia to be entitled to justice also. Of course, because of how we know history progressed, it is difficult to concede this point to Austria ourselves, because so often they've been placed in the bad guy camp, and within such a camp, no entitlements exist. The irresponsibility and erroneous presumptions of Leopold von Berchtold in particular are also worth mentioning as the third point on the Habsburg Empire. Berchtold did more than any other statesman to accelerate the drive towards war, had he not ensured that Austria declared war on Serbia on the 28th of July, then events would have proceeded entirely differently. Russia by the 25th of July was in the midst of its period preparatory to war, and Austria would not be ready to declare war on Serbia until the 12th or 14th of August. It is entirely possible that within that time, mediation could have come, or that other powers would have found out about the Russian actions, like Britain for example, which may well have convinced Russia's statesmen that London would protest any escalation of events. How do we understand Berchtold, or forgive him, considering the drastic implications of his decision, which seems in itself to defy all reason, but which on a wider scope provided the urgency for the rest of Europe's march to war? Sometimes, it is not possible to make sense of what statesmen did. Sometimes statesmen do make mistakes, and sometimes these mistakes in judgment are not reported by history. But sometimes they are, and sometimes they have implications beyond what their authors could ever have imagined. Berchtold wasn't trying to launch war on the world by declaring it as fast as possible on Serbia. 
He was trying to move quickly to satisfy what he thought Germany wanted in the form of a fast response, while also trying to put the kibosh on any attempts to mediate a peaceful outcome between Austria and Serbia. Berchtold acted in the wrong. He is perhaps the most glaring example of a statesman that did, but if we are to judge all characters in this drama fairly, then we must also judge the reactions of the other statesmen of the time, some of whom had flipped their own switches before Berchtold had foolishly flipped his. The Russian period preparatory to war that began on the 25th of July was a significant step towards world war. Sazonov knew that by pushing for it, he was preparing his state for a major conflict. At the time, his country was partially mobilising against only Austria, but it would soon fully engage in mobilisation against both of the central powers. Sazonov's part in this play has been overlooked by historians. Sazonov had decided on a military response by the 25th, before a reply to the Austrian ultimatum had even arrived, and before either Austria or Serbia had mobilised. This fact is what led Sean McMeekin in his book July 1914 to point out that while it was Berchtold that isolated Austria and embarrassed Germany, it was not he who forced mobilisation on anyone, and certainly not before news of Serbia's reply was even available. The Russian period preparatory to war was a determined step in a single direction, and because it was carried out in secret, it enabled historians to claim that it did not mean war. In a way they are correct. MacMeekin makes the point that the entire reason the period preparatory to war was concocted in the first place was to give Russia a head start. The measures both fell short of war and constituted intense preparations for war. It was separate from the mobilisation process, yet it would make carrying out that process a whole lot easier. We thus come to the central point of the project, the real point of no return. So often it is Austria's declaration of war on Serbia that is upheld. But consider the chronology. Though the war gave Sazonov a pretext for escalating the preparations, these preparations had already been underway since the 25th, three full days before war was declared. By keeping quiet about the period preparatory to war and delaying announcements of mobilisations, Sazonov was able to fool generations of historians into thinking that Austria had acted first and that Russia was merely responding to the Austrian actions against Serbia on the 25th. Yet, from what we know now, it is clear that the Russian preparations were well advanced against both Austria and Germany by the 28th of July. The long-running argument of partial or general mobilisation rests on a fundamental myth of Russian policy. Russia did not have a genuine partial mobilisation strategy, because if St. Petersburg wanted to mobilise only partially and only against Austria she would have to still do so with the use of her border transport hubs that would still concern and antagonise Germany. It was the older Russian Prime Minister, who was dismissed in January 1914, that had declared that partial mobilisation without the use of the Warsaw hub was technically impossible. Russia, just like Germany and Austria, had no plans for partial mobilisation, because there were plans plotted for a general war against both of the central powers a fact implied by the existence of the opposing alliance blocs. It was this fact that recommended the Schlieffen plan to Malka, and these considerations that were in the front of his mind when Wilhelm had instructed him to change all these plans and make war just against Russia. Malka protested not because he wanted a hard, long, difficult war, but because no German plans existed for a limited war, 
Germany never counted on fighting a half-war because, like Russia, she never considered herself to be in a diplomatic or strategic situation to be able to. It was full war preparations or none at all. That was why Bethmann hesitated so much to launch the German immediate danger of war, and it also explains why he was so enraged by Sazanov's insistence that their preparations didn't mean war. This insistence, just like the creation of the idea of partial mobilisation, was a tool Sazanov used to persuade France and Britain that Russia was trying to avoid giving Germany a pretext for war. The decision to make general war was made by the Russians. Not the Austrians, Germans, French, British, or Serbians, or Illuminati. It was a conscious decision by Sazanov and the rest of the Russian cabinet to begin general mobilisation on the 29th of July. And it was the Tsar's decision to stop it because he knew what it meant, even declaring that, I will not be held responsible for a monstrous slaughter. Tsar Nicholas II knew that this act constituted a genuine step towards war, and it was because of this that he spent the next day agonising about what to do. In light of the fact that Russia's statesmen were still trying to persuade him that mobilisation remained the only course. Long before, the French ambassador to Russia, Paleologue, had sent his 30 hour late telegram to Paris announcing Russia's mobilisation, France was aware of Russia's actions too. The scene that awoke France's key statesmen on the Wednesday night, over the 29th to the 30th of July, was the news of Sazanov's telegram, which announced Russia's inability to accede to Germany's desire to stop mobilising, and that therefore, it only remains for us to hasten our armaments and regard war as imminent. This jolted France into action, and and it began like Russia to manipulate British opinion. Though Poincaré and Viviani could claim plausible deniability of all of this, having been at sea from the 24th to 29th of July, they knew now what was going on after this emergency meeting that kept them awake through the night of the 29th. They knew that Russia was now mobilising, they knew that France had to reciprocate, and they knew that this would mean war. But did mobilisation mean war? French politicians would insist that it did not, and would even provide the handy and apparently honourable 10 kilometre withdrawal, though such a measure is exposed as bogus in the terms of the Franco-Russian Entente, which stipulated that both powers had to transport their forces as near the frontier as possible so as to maintain their war plans. It was the architect of Russia's mobilisation, General Dobrovolsky, the same man who had argued to Sazanov that partial mobilisation was impossible, who made the following statement about mobilisation. Once the moment has been chosen, everything is settled, there is no going back. It determines mechanically the beginning of the war. The military plans of the Entente relied on a timetable. By mobilisation, M, plus 15, France and Russia were expected to launch their first joint offensives of the war. And indeed they did so, with France invading Alsace on the 14th of August, and Russia winning its first victory a few days after that. The comparative gap in coordination between the Central Powers, which had meant that Austria's declaration of war on Serbia surprised Germany as much as everyone else, exposes as false the older myth that both premeditated the launching of the war. The plans and processes of the Entente were in place long before Austria and Germany had even begun mobilising against France and Russia. This doesn't absolve Germany and Austria for their own blunders, but it does make one at least consider the possibility that the drip-fed Germany-started-it philosophy is based on bad information. 
The largest blunder Germany committed was undoubtedly the invasion of Belgium, which Moltke upheld as necessary for the fulfilment of the Schlieffen Plan, but which painted Germany in the worst possible light, and was essentially a diplomatic, political and strategic suicide that overrode what the Entente had done. Belgium, more importantly, was what mattered to Britain, and with Grey relying himself upon the story that France and Russia told him, the violation of Belgium seemed to vindicate this very tale of Austro-German aggression that began with an attack on Belgrade, and led to a premeditated Central Powers plot to win European domination. Not only was Belgium attacked at its strongest point before Germany's forces were sufficiently concentrated, but such military blundering was a diplomatic gift to Sir Edward Grey, whose entire argument beforehand rested on Britain's obligation to defend the French coasts. The sight of Germans attacking Liège in the first visible act of military aggression of the war papered over the cracks in Grey's argument and enabled him to uphold Britain's duty to Belgium above all else. But Grey as well was surely not blameless for the woeful job he did as Britain's foreign secretary. Remaining consistently behind on events and unwilling to investigate outside of his own biased box, Grey completely failed to notice France and Russia's march to war, but by the time of the Belgian attack was condemning Germany for its role in starting it. His confused and apparently disingenuous neutrality pleas to Germany threw Berlin off its course, while his very unawareness of events meant that France and Russia behaved unrestrained and recklessly, without the previous weight of Britain giving the Entente pause for thought there was little to concern either that their course would not be approved of. British belligerence was the last thing Berlin wanted, and yet because of the ineptitude of British diplomats, be they Grey or the Russian ambassador or others, the view in London on the 4th of August 1914 was that Germany had willed, caused and intended the First World War into existence. The lack of desire on the part of the Central Powers to experience World War is a considerable point. Germany had lost the naval race effectively by 1912 and definitively by 1914. The Austro-German alliance was in a militarily hopeless position in summer 1914 thanks to military bills and increases in conscription in France and Russia. Though by this stage France was recruiting 90% of its male population into service and thus desperately scraping the barrel in the process, this was a fact in 1914. The preemptive war idea, that Germany launched the First World War so that Russia or France would not be stronger in a few years' time, was no more significant qualitatively than the French idea of revanche against Germany or Conrad's repeated insistence that Austria must crush Serbia, or Russia's plot to conquer the Dardanelles. Talk of preventative war was certainly ongoing in 1914, but talk was not action and we must be wary of applying too much significance to Germany's words, especially when they were blocked by the two old women, as Maltke mockingly lamented. Germany and Austria were not in a position of strength in summer 1914. They were outnumbered on both fronts and outgunned at sea. Neither power wanted world war because they knew they would lose it. Austria wanted to crush Serbia, but it had to be dragged kicking and screaming to declare war on Russia while Germany had to be forced, after much emotion, to declare war on Russia, and only because Bethmann, acting with his misguided sense of legal propriety, thought it was the only way a state could conduct itself. Germany went into the war with most of its statesmen thinking they would lose. The Schlieffen plan was one of desperation, a march through Belgium was fraught with risk, and the very fact that Germany had to operate on so stringent a timetable vindicates the idea that she was under serious strain. 
Had she been in a position of strength, had she won the naval race, had she got the numbers over her rivals, and had her Austrian ally been ready, willing and able to support her, Berlin would fit the painted picture of events that forms the world consensus on how the First World War began. However, it is vital that as historians, amateur or otherwise in pursuit of the truth, we seek to present the story that is supported by the facts. This method then, far from providing us with the scheming Germany and Austria that plotted the World War, tells the story of two states that made a series of incredible blunders, both strategic and diplomatic, but who in summer 1914 were pulled into the very last thing that either of them wanted. How could I have gotten it so wrong? That was the question I asked myself time and time again when I read through the newest sources available on the subject of the July Crisis. I'm reminded of my World War I special, in which I listed out the most readily repeated reasons for why the German War Guild Clause was perhaps a bit strong, but that Germany did deserve the lion's share of blame for what happened. How incredibly wrong I was. Already I've gotten numerous emails saying that what I've done here doesn't exactly gel with what I did over a year ago in the July Crisis episode of my World War One special, episode 20.4 to be exact. The need to launch preemptive war, the naval race and the warlike Kaiser were all the reasons I emphasised heavily in that episode for why the war broke out. It broke out because Germany wanted the war at that time since it was better then rather than later. That was what I said, that was what I believed. Germany, it is true, should have done a lot more to prevent the war from breaking out. It should have monitored its ally Austria more closely after giving it the blank check of support that facilitated Austria's careless blundering through the month as it tried to formulate a response. It should have proceeded with real vigour and recommended the mediation offers to Vienna rather than only presenting them disingenuously when it was too late. Even in the last days, the Kaiser should have done more to defuse the situation. An argument exists that claims the war began because Germany declared it, not because Russia or anyone else mobilised. It points to the fact that if Germany had simply not reacted to what Russia and France were doing, and sought genuine mediation through Britain, then war would not have broken out. This idea is one I like to call, it's still Germany's fault to me, damn it. Because even though it recognises that the new information exists, it still lives in the past. Why should Germany have to restrain itself when no one else was willing to? Why should we blame Germany for reacting to the Entente, instead of blaming the latter for acting in the first place? The Austro-German military position was dire in the summer of 1914. Its planners knew it, their statesmen mostly knew it, and the rivals definitely did. The positive messages pinged between France and Russia in the opening stages of the war point to a bloc that believed they would win, even more so when Britain joined their side. The last thing Wilhelm wanted was a war. It was he who proposed mediation plans to the end. It was he who exploded in a fit of rage when he learned that Russia had been mobilised five days before his correspondence with his Russian third cousin began. What Wilhelm desired was to see Serbia receive its punishment for what elements within it had done. He believed, like most German statesmen, that Austria had a right to get justice from Serbia for the assassinations. Yet no Entente statesman did, because it would infringe on Serbian sovereignty. Then when it became clear to Austria and Germany that Serbia was unwilling or unable to provide satisfaction to Austria, the existing war party in both states grew in size. 
But this was a war party for a localised war with Serbia, not world war. If you argue that German and Austrian statesmen wanted a world war in 1914, then you're basically claiming that the Central Powers wanted to risk everything from a seriously disadvantaged military and political position for the sake of a war which would only be successful if the unforgiving Schlieffen plan worked, which the Austrians, don't forget, didn't even know about. It just doesn't make sense. I realise that now. Most surprising and interesting was the narrative that pointed to the rapprochement between Germany and Britain. I had heard that a detente was in place, and of course, I was aware of that cliché that claimed that 1914 was Europe's most peaceful year, but I had no idea of the volume behind it. Not only was Russia looking troublesome to British statesmen, but the very Entente was potentially in jeopardy for other reasons. Having reached the peak of their enlistment resources in the three-year law, France at a 90% conscription rate was pursuing an unsustainable policy. At that level, recruitment could either escalate to a point of war, as it did, or it could decrease in a policy of détente. This détente with Germany would have been possible, because German planners that didn't argue for the preemptive war strategy often stood in the other camp, which argued that victory was technically impossible within a few years against the combined forces of both France and Russia. The Entente would be pacified because France's government would be changed. The Calais affair, in fact, contained incriminating evidence that President Poincaré wanted to keep hidden, since it revealed that he had taken money from the Russians during his presidential race. A scandal like this may have caused a resignation, which could have led to a callow government inspired by the policies of John Huarey, the pacifist socialist who, if you'll remember, was killed on the eve of war. From there we can speculate ourselves what would have happened. The war had a remarkable way of covering issues like political scandal up in the face of necessary unity in an external crisis. The covering effect of the war is especially evident in the case of our narrative's greatest cameo player, Britain. Britain was on the eve of civil war in summer 1914, as the Home Rule Bill could be vetoed no longer, and Ireland's nationalist and unionist factions threatened to split British opinion for the foreseeable future. Whatever Britain would manage to do to solve the situation, it would be occupied many years into the future, as indeed it would actually be once the war ended. With Britain's desire to maintain its agreements with France, pursue a detente with Germany and sort out its domestic issues, could we have seen the fragmenting of the bloc system and the transformation of Europe into a new era of peaceful cooperation? Such what-ifs are of course better saved for a talk episode, but they are nonetheless worth considering. When we look at the number of ways history could have gone in summer 1914, it makes it all the more incredible that the war broke out at all. But as I said in the introduction, I'm not here to talk about alternative history. I'm here to talk about real history. The account of the July crisis I presented to you did not contain the usual characters of a warlike Kaiser ignorant of the facts on the ground, but of a conflicted sovereign who to the very end wished to avoid war, especially with Britain. There was no premeditation on the part of the Central Powers to launch the war. Instead, the period preparatory to war that Russia began on the 25th serves as the history's real countdown to war, while its general mobilisation against Austria and Germany on the 30th of July was the first genuine step towards world war that any state had yet made. 
I'm not trying to excuse Berktold for wishing or declaring war on Serbia. I'm not trying to excuse Bethman for his lacklustre way of keeping tabs on his ally. And I'm not trying to blame Russia exclusively for all that happened. I'm not trying to suggest that everything you know is wrong or that the real bad guys were the Entente. The truth is that there was no bad guys at all. As Christopher Clark notes, there was no coterie of powerful individuals who, like velvet-jacketed Bond villains as he put it, plotted a malevolent plan. The outbreak of the war was not some Agatha Christie novel in which we will discover now, having reached the end of our story, a culprit standing over the corpse of peace in the observatory. Instead, the outbreak of war was an unnecessary tragedy that erupted seemingly out of nowhere by men who played with fire on a daily basis, and who felt that, with the perspective of events that they possessed, handed down to them by the historical experiences they endured, they could not possibly get burned if they did what was right. We, as analysts, as history enthusiasts, can judge them for their colossal mistakes and convince ourselves that we would have done better. But as they stared into the abyss of August 1914, having never seen or done anything like this before, having read or learned of no precedents in history, Europe's statesmen made their decisions based on facts we know now to be largely untrue, and based on failures in the international order that nowadays are maintained by factions or institutions or lobbies that are dedicated to peace. There is no single culprit because, as Clark concludes, all the participants were carrying a gun. And as each culprit systematically murdered the peace and damned the 20th century to suffer, he did so crucially hampered by his own inability to see ahead and witness his own consequences. I do not, and I cannot, blame one single man for the failures in the July crisis. I don't blame Princep for shooting, Hoyos for acquiring, Tiza for delaying, the Tsar for approving, Sazanov for mobilising, or anyone else along the list. Taken together, these men formed unawares the most depressing series of blunders the world has ever seen, that led to the most tragically uninevitable war I have come across. However, if one went back in time and told these statesmen, with the knowledge we have now, with the awareness of what their decisions did to us as a race, we have to believe that they would have stopped, that they would have felt compelled to cease from their action, since, as bad as the Tsar envisioned the monstrous slaughter to be, it was above his imagination to think that the 20th century could have progressed as it did, falling from disaster to disaster, genocide to genocide, tragedy to tragedy. If we are to judge the men that are responsible, then we must judge them as one. There is no single criminal, no smoking gun, and the actions of any man in the chain of responsibility could have altered the course, just as surely as the smoke that emerged from the barrel of Prince Epscon after he committed the deed need not have led to the July crisis. And the worst mistake in the history of mankind. I hope you've enjoyed this project, guys. It has undoubtedly been the most stressful thing I've ever taken on, and though I'm basically exhausted now and my summer's almost over, I would do it all over again if I could, for the simple reason that by doing it in the first place, I did what all historians seek to do, what they live to do, I investigated, I challenged, and I concluded to produce something which I hope will stand as the most comprehensive audio analysis of the July crisis, at least for the moment. I learned so much, and I have so many people to thank, mostly those I spurned and ignored in favour of doing this, but also those that spurred me on to keep going, even when it was 1am and I still had no idea what a period preparatory to war actually was. I still don't really. 
You guys are the best, and I do this as a gift to you. If you are like me and you want to learn from history, but feel like your education syllabus or ancient aliens just isn't cutting it for you anymore, my understanding and perspective of the war thus transformed, I leave you now to begin a much-needed mini-holiday, before my master's starts and my brain melts again. However, I can't help but feel like there's a talk episode in this, so you've by no means heard the last of me yet. The podcasting guns of August may well be firing their ammo off yet again in WDF land. You're the best history friends, and thanks for sticking with me. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.